We're going to read from God's Word, Genesis 29. We have been journeying through this um, book. Initially, it was supposed to be a study in um, the story of Abraham, but we just decided to keep on going, and uh, we have plans to keep on going right through to the end of the chapter, God willing. So, Genesis 29, this is the Word of God. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked him, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel. With the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over, rolled a stone away from the mouth of the well, and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you're my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form. And beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. 
My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. And when the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpha to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Intrigue and romance once again in the Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, your holy, infallible, and inerrant word. We ask by the power of your spirit that you'd open our eyes and our hearts to the truths of it, and you would draw us to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, I came across a man that I will never forget. He was probably in his 50s, worked a good job, lived a very comfortable lifestyle, was very warm and approachable. And he told me that a number of years prior to our conversation was his wedding day. And after meeting the one and falling in love, after dating for quite some time, after spending a lot of time and money for the big day, as he stood at the altar waiting for his bride, news came to him that his bride had failed to show up. You can imagine the shock. And as he told the story of being humiliated in front of family and friends, the only thing more stunning and remarkable and impressionable and moving to me as I listened to him speak was what I discovered about him, about the kind of guy that he is, about what he had gone through. And how he had dealt with what he had had as revealed in the story of the big day. Genesis 29 is a story in which the groom's intended bride fails to show up. But what we're going to discover as we walk through this this evening is that above and beyond the story of the big day, this chapter reveals something about people about what God's people tend to be like, as well as what God is like, who rules and reigns above it all. 
Before we jump in, it's important to remember the context. I know that we're familiar with this, but let's make sure, let's call it to mind before we get in. Back in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and promises to form a people for himself and to bless them and to lead them into a land, the promised land. It's a people that are later known as the church. That's Genesis 12. Later in 21, Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. And Isaac is a key figure in Genesis. He is God's promised son. The son through whom God will fulfill his promises. Well, in 25, Isaac has children, Esau and Jacob. And although you might expect Esau to be blessed by Isaac so that through Esau the promises of God might continue to be fulfilled. What we're told is that Jacob deceives Isaac so that he's blessed, so that the promises of God continue to be fulfilled through him. Well, when Esau finds out, he's livid. And so mad he is that Jacob has to leave the promised land, knowing that one day he will return in fulfillment of the promises of God. And as he goes, Isaac tells him to go and find his uncle Laban, so that through him he might find a bride as he continues to trust and believe in the promises of God. And it's only when you have all of that in mind that this is a story of a child of the promised son called to live in the light of the promises of God and all that is to come. Can you begin to appreciate what this chapter is all about? Because this is a chapter that reveals what a child of the promised son does, how he lives in light of the promises of God. So, how does he live? Well, back in chapter 24, you might remember from a few weeks ago, we're given a story of a groom seeking a bride. And as Abraham seeks a bride for his son Isaac, he sends his servant out. And where does the servant go? He goes to a well. Because in the Old Testament, wells are symbols of life. So it's no surprise that in verse 1 we're told, Jacob goes on his journey, he moves east towards Laban, and where does he go? He goes to a well. But what's absolutely critical to notice here as you read this in the context of the whole book is that unlike Abraham's servant, who when he gets to the well in search of a bride, he bows before God and seeks God's will and direction that God may choose who that bride is, Jacob acts very differently. You notice how he acts? Notice we're told that when he hears that Laban's got a daughter called Rachel, and notice the description. Verse 6, she's got sheep, which is a symbol of material worth in the Old Testament. According to verse 9, she's a shepherdess. Chapter 31 suggests that because of that, she would have had a right, possibly, to her father's inheritance. This is a woman of material value and worth. Notice what he does in verse 10. He saw her. 
That's a verb already used in the book of Genesis when speaking about being attracted to something and drawn towards it because it's pleasing to the eye. It's no surprise when he hears about her and he saw her, what are we told? He waters her flock. Now that might mean absolutely nothing to us. But given the description in chapter in verses 2 and 3, that in order to water the flock, you would have had to roll away a big stone, which ordinarily would have been done by a number of people, and yet something that Jacob does himself as he depends upon his own power and might, as it seems he tries to impress her as he seeks her for himself. And then we're told that he kissed her, verse 11, which is a symbol of embrace, and then wept with tears of joy. What Moses is telling us is that the way this child of the promised son seeks to live in light of the promises of God is with no regard for God in his will. But instead he pursues after that which is pleasing to his eye. That which is of material value and worth, as if that's of primary importance in his life. As he depends upon his own power and strength. Where do we come across that description in the book of Genesis? Is that not exactly what happened to Eve in the garden? When Eve's in the garden and the serpent comes to tempt her, what are we told? She sees what's a delight to her eye. What looks good. What's good for food. What's of material value and worth, as if that's of primary importance in her life. And she sees that which is able to make her wise. As if she can live on the basis of her own power and strength. As she eats in rejection of God. Because in spite of who Jacob is, and in spite of the promises of God, here Jacob now lives in rejection of God. We live at a time when marriage is under attack. Marriage has always been under attack. But now even the definition of marriage is under attack. And the Bible tells us why that is. Because according to the Bible, marriage points beyond itself to something else. Because just as a groom enters into a permanent and exclusive union with his bride, so the Bible tells us God enters into an exclusive and permanent union with his people. Because marriage points beyond itself to God's relationship with his people. And as Jacob goes out in search for a bride, because of what marriage is, Moses is giving us an insight into Jacob's relationship with God. As one who nevertheless, in light of the promises of God, lives not in pursuit of God in his will, but he goes after that which appeals to his eyes, appeals to his bank balance, as he lives on the basis of his own power and might. 
This evening as we gather together as God's church, we gather as the children of the promised son. Not simply as Isaac, but as the ultimate son, the greater son, the Lord Jesus. That's who we are tonight. But I wonder even as the children of the promised son this evening, I wonder do you find that Jacob's life is your life too? Do you find this evening that in spite of the promises of God and who you are as a Christian, do you find yourself still living in pursuit of things that appeal to your eye? You're pursuing after things of material value and worth as if they're of primary importance in your life? You're living life on the basis of your own power and might? We're told exactly how Jacob gets on. Not very well. Because as we're told in verse 13 that he's embraced by Laban, it seems that he begins to work for him. And do you notice the payment he wants for his work? He asks Laban for his daughter in marriage. Not Leah, the older daughter, but the strong one. Notice the description of verse 17. The one who's beautiful in form and appearance. And after working for seven years, he now comes to Laban to get what he wants. A number of years ago, I heard a story of a pastor. I think he lived in Colorado. He told a story one morning, uh, one day, of how he was lying in bed around four or five in the morning when it was light. And as he was lying in bed, he heard a thump. He jumped up. And he turns to his wife and says, I think you need to check that out. (laughs) Didn't go down too well. He was turfed out of bed. He grabbed a big stick. He walked up the hallway into the conservatory where he thought the noise was coming from. He turns into the conservatory, swings the stick. Nothing there. Thought it was a bit strange. He heads back to the bedroom, puts the stick away, climbs into bed, and as he's lying in bed, here's the thud. He jumps out of bed, grabs the big stick, walks into the conservatory, starts swinging the stick. Nothing there. Bit confused, he's on his way out of the conservatory, and he hears it again. And he looks round, and he sees a bird lying on the patio floor. And as he walks towards the bird, he notices the bird get up and fly off before it turns around, flies directly towards a window, and smash, and ends up on the patio floor. And as he looked out at the bird, he looked out and noticed that this time it had broken its wing, unable to get up and fly away. And as he opened the patio door, he walked outside and turned and noticed his reflection in the window. And he realized what happened. That the bird had seen its own reflection in the window and believing it to be another bird, it had gone after it. Not realizing that what it was chasing was an illusion. Something it couldn't get. Unable to get what he wants. 
all the while destroying itself in the process. And that, he said, is sin. Sin is chasing an illusion in your life. It's not real. It cannot and will not give you what you want. And all you'll end up doing is destroying yourself in the process. And as Jacob goes here searching for a bride, and in his search he searches after that which appeals to his eye, that which is of material value and worth as if it's of primary importance in his life, as he lives in complete dependence on his own power and might, only to discover that he cannot get what he wants as if those things are going to give him life, abundant life, as he lives as a child of the promised son. Messing up his life in the process, what he discovers is true of all of us when we live against God and his will as his children. You end up chasing an illusion, chasing after something that cannot give you what you want. Destroying yourself in the process. That's why this evening pornography is so destructive. It's designed to appeal to your eyes, but it'll never satisfy you. It cannot give you life. And all it will do is destroy you and the people around you in the process. That's why greed the lust for more money or possessions or popularity or recognition or more things. It's why it's so dangerous. It's tempting. You think that the more you have, the more you get, somehow will satisfy you, but it can't. It's an illusion. It'll never give you life. It's why self-dependence, looking to yourself for your own power and might, is very popular today. But it's nonsense. You cannot save yourself. You are not the solution to your own problem. And when you follow it, you'll end up ruining your life. I wonder if what Jacob discovers in chapter 29 is true of you this evening. You this evening living as a child of the promised son, are you living in pursuit of an illusion in your life? Only to discover it's destroying you in the process? There's another danger we're given in the final few verses in pursuing this kind of life because we're told from verse 21 to the end that as Jacob goes to Laban and protests, against him being given the wrong bride. Notice what Laban says to him in verse 26. It's chilling. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Isn't that stunning, given that this is exactly what Jacob did himself? He is the younger, sought the blessing over the firstborn. And as he turns and nevertheless agrees to give him Rachel as his bride, notice he does so on the condition that he nevertheless still takes Leah to be his bride also. As the father abdicates himself of responsibility for his daughter. 
and passes the buck. And on the condition that he works another seven years so as to serve him and give Laban what he wants. Because as Jacob lives against God and his will, he not only pursues an illusion and ends up messing up his life, but now he finds himself entrapped by the schemes of sinful man. Remember speaking to somebody recently who told me that they were experiencing antisocial behavior in their neighborhood. They went out and tried to solve it and it didn't work contacted the police, it didn't work. So they approached a local gang. They didn't think it was a good idea, but they thought they had no choice. And within days, the problem had gone. The problem is that years later, they cannot get freed from the grip of that gang. What happens to Jacob in these verses is true of all of us. That when you as a child of the promised son live against God and his will, pursuing after that which appeals to your eyes, that which is of material value and worth as of primary importance in your life. And when you live on the basis of your own power and might, not only do you pursue an illusion and damage and mess up your life, but you'll find yourself entrapped by the schemes of sinful man, yourself or those around you. Chapter 28 is a happy chapter. I don't know who gave me this one, but chapter 29 is a sad one. And as Moses gives us an insight into Jacob's life, you know what this chapter is designed to do? It's designed to give you an insight into your own life too. Because do you not find that Jacob's life is your life this evening? If you're honest tonight, do you not find that even as a child of the promised son, the Lord Jesus, do you not find yourself being drawn by the things that appeal to your eye? Do you not find yourself attracted to things of material value and getting caught up in that as if that's of primary importance? Do you not find yourself going through life on the basis of your own power and might? It's Jacob's life, not your life too. Genesis 29 is a sobering passage. It's designed to hold a mirror up to God's people that we may see that Jacob's life is our life too. There's another thread that runs through this chapter. Because in chapter 27, Jacob is sent out of the land. And in chapter 28, he's reminded of the promises of God. So that even though he sins and lives against God in chapter 29, he nevertheless does so, knowing that one day he'll return to the land. As God continues, in spite of his sin, to fulfill his promises. Because and only because of the faithfulness of the true and living God. For as you read on through this chapter and through the book of Genesis and into the rest of the Old Testament, 
What you read is not just of Jacob's sin, but the faithfulness of God, who in spite of the sin of Jacob would nevertheless bless him with 12 sons. He'd go on to become known as the 12 tribes of Israel and form the very foundation of what today has become God's church. 12 tribes who wouldn't just return to the promised land in this life, but would ultimately return to the eternal promised land to come. For in and through the very line of Jacob, in spite of his sin, you know what the Bible tells us? God would come himself. That as he descends through the line of Jacob, he would come himself as the greater Jacob, the greater Isaac, the ultimate promised son, the Lord Jesus. And unlike Jacob, who is a child of the promised son, would live against God and his will, Jesus Christ would come with the sole purpose of living in complete devotion to God and his will, to the point that he would be led to death on a cross. On the cross, he would die for his very own people, for our failure to live in pursuit of God and his will, and for our own fault of being caught up and distracted by the things that appeal to our eyes, our bank account, as we live in pursuit of our own power and strength. So that on the cross, as Jesus Christ dies for the sins of his people, he would nevertheless rise again to take the children, his children, men and women, boys and girls of every tribe and tongue, and forgive us and transform us and lead us to pursue him and his will that we may have life in this life and into the eternal land to come. You see, Genesis 29 is a sobering passage of the sin of Jacob, but it's also a stunning passage on the faithfulness of God, fulfilled through the promised Son, the Lord Jesus. So as this mirror is held up to you this evening here in Rich Hill, may it reveal to you something of yourself. This is our story. And may it drive us to the promised Son, the Lord Jesus. And may you receive in him life this evening, new life. And as you embrace him and love him and feast on him through his word, may he lead you in abundant life, true life, not in pursuit of all that nonsense, but in pursuit of him and his will, that you may enjoy him now and in your eternal home to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we come this evening and we praise you for the promised Son, the Lord Jesus. There is no one like him. We thank you for the story of Jacob. 
We thank you that as the Bible unashamedly spells out the sin of your people, you highlight and emphasize your grace. That this evening in Rich Hill, years, thousands of years later, as we humbly bow our knee before you and receive the promised Son, the Lord Jesus, not only is there forgiveness and reconciliation to God, but in that there is life, an abundant life, now and in the eternity to come. May we not simply listen, but may we receive the Lord Jesus and live in life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.